friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Hi, and welcome back <laughs> to Two Guys, One Book. I'm Tim. And I'm Brian. <laughs> I, guess, I guess we say that in the intro. Yes, what are we reading this week, Tim? This week's book was The Road to Unfreedom by Timothy Snyder. Nice. Yes. And it is about uh, Russia, Ukraine, and the United States. Um, I would kind of classify it as a recent history book, like a modern history. Right. Uh, what would you say? I agree. Uh, recent history, especially pertaining... It was a lot of details about Russia and Ukraine and Russia invading and annexing Crimea and not just like what happened and everything, but also the politics behind everything and also a little more into the depth of the Russian mentality Mm -hmm. when it comes to politics post-Soviet Union and that have led up to this feeling of um, isolation almost, I would say. Mm -hmm. That EU, the EU is slowly picking up all these Eastern European countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union. And Russia is now lashing out, trying to protect their interests, and invading Crimea was one of them. And then it does go into details about uh, the 2016 presidential election, which were interesting. And um, yeah, this and it was written by Timothy, Timothy Snyder's a professor and historian. Specializing in Eastern Europe, being affairs, so mm-hmm. seems like a very credible guy, very knowledgeable, and there was a lot of notes at the end of the book too to to back up what he was saying. Because that was my thing. Like as I was reading it, I'm like, this guy is like, I felt like at times he was purporting certain things as fact when I didn't really see the connection of the dots. Mm-hmm. But I, the the note section in the back, I just glanced at it briefly, I did not go into detail, but it led me to believe that those so, were legitimate. Before we go too deep yeah. into it, um, <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> was like um, <laughs> no, that was a good kind of summary of mm-hmm. what he was going for, but uh, I think first I'll just say what made me choose it, and sure. then we oh, can yeah. do our first impressions. Right. Um, so I think it's just an interesting set of topics with Russia, Ukraine, United States, how everything kind of is interconnected. Um, the role of Russia's influence on our elections, our presidential elections, um, their interference in the EU uh, with Russia, the UK and Brexit, Germany, um, refugees. There are so many different factors here, and I feel like he did a pretty good job of covering a lot of them. And I do have my critiques of the book, but what is your overall first impression of it? (sighs) It's this this book. I have an internal conflict with this book because I like the subject matter. I respect the author for being a knowledgeable person, but like I felt like it was kind of kind of drug on, a little bit repetitive. Um, I felt like honestly, this should have just been a like a New Yorker article um, instead of a poll book. Um, so. But, I mean, I still appreciated it and, and learned a lot about what was going on, especially the Ukraine bits, because that was in, back in 2014. I don't remember all those details. I don't remember even that whole Russia-Ukraine thing being that 
big of a deal in America. You know, so, I mean, so it, it was, I was very much glad I read it, yes. Um, but felt like there were definitely some flaws. I think that's a fair critique. Yeah. There were times where it felt a little like it was dragging to me. Um, the Ukraine section, although it, I found I found it interesting, I also thought it was maybe a little longer than it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I think he was just setting the context for how those strategies and tactics Russia was using were applied to the U.S. and the EU. But um, to me, the most interesting chapter was uh, at the end when he was talking about the influence on the U.S. politics. And we both live in the United States, so we're biased in that regard. But um, for me, I was kind of like waiting for that uh, material to come. I completely agree. The last, the end of the book I found the most fascinating, the, where he goes into the details of how Russia used their a similar misinformation campaign that they used in Ukraine, and they duplicated that in America, and how we were just totally oblivious to the Ukraine situation, so we were not prepared to handle the Russia attack during the 2016 presidential election. And yes, I did find that the most interesting, because he had, I felt like that was where he backed up all the rhetoric he was talking about with a little more substantial uh, information about, you know, the social media followers of different sites, you know. And so, yes, I found the end much more interesting because, like, the beginning is, like, the very, the very, very beginning is about this politician, Ilian or something, mm-hmm. or maybe not a politician. He was, like, an exile of Soviet... Like, like a- during, during the Bolshevik Revolution, he was exiled to Germany and, like, wrote about Soviet... The Soviet political theorist, yes. I think. Yeah. Oh, yes. Excellent. <laughs> well done, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> Just so people know. And he influenced Putin like years later. Even though a lot of Putin's philosophies were different, he could kind of take that and then um, form it into propaganda for modern Russia. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I think... So the fact that we enjoy the last at end of the book is that in part because of all the groundwork Snyder lays in the first third, in the middle of the book, going into full detail, almost seeming long-winded at times about how Russia did all this stuff. And he was dropping so many Russian names. Could you keep them all apart? I mean, I mean keep them separate. And It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. I think it, yeah, if the book was a bit shorter and focused more on the material in the last chapter, mm-hmm. I think I would have found it more captivating. Mm-hmm. But in general, I do think he did a good job of picking important topics and then piecing together some of the history. Um, one other critique I had, though, was I think he does oversimplify some things a bit, and he uses this sort of abstract language, such as the politics of inevitability versus eternity. Yep. And we'll go into that Um and like unfreedom, how would you just like? I in my mind, I don't even know what that means. I don't know if he ever ex- <laughs> explicitly defined the road to unfreedom. What is unfreedom? <laughs> that is a good question, Tim. I don't think he explicitly says what he means by the road to unfreedom. Like America is slowly going down the path of Russia with our uh, misinformation and not trusting facts and uh, rhetoric. You know, people telling blatant lies and getting away with it because no one trusts what's true anymore. 
And but like that's almost like the road to untruth more than the road to unfreedom. But I guess that he's saying that that ultimately leads to author- authoritarian governments. But you're right; he doesn't say that very much at all. He he beats us over the head with this, this inevitability versus eternity stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you fully understand that? Well, I mean that that I mean it, it just seemed to me like I guess. I guess my thought about that is, should we explain it first? Let's yeah. explain it first, then I'll okay. give, give it I picked a couple sense. of good quotes from okay, the beginning. Good, good. Um, okay. So, inevitability. It's hard. It's hard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> inevitability. He says, Americans and Europeans were guided through the new century by a tale about the end of history, by what I will call the politics of inevitability, a sense that the future is just more of the present, that the laws of progress are known, that there are no alternatives, and therefore nothing really to be done. In the American capitalist version of the story, nature brought the market, which brought democracy, which brought happiness. In the European version, history brought the nation, which learned from war that peace was good, and hence chose integration and prosperity. Right. That's inevitability. Inevitability. You have one for eternity? Eternity, he says... um, Okay. So he says, In power, eternity politicians manufacture crisis and manipulate the resultant emotion. To distract from their inability or unwillingness to reform, eternity politicians instruct their citizens to experience elation and outrage at short intervals, drowning the future in the present. In foreign policy, eternity politicians belittle and undo the achievements of countries that might seem like models to their own citizens. Using technology to transmit political fiction, both at home and abroad, eternity politicians deny truth and seek to reduce life to spectacle and feeling. Right. So what does that mean? (laughs) That's the thing. They're they're sort of broad definitions. So I think he wants us to consider them more as concepts than a definite... But the general idea, I think, is interesting because, like, if you think about inevitability with Americans, Europeans, a lot of us probably, in a somewhat arrogant point of view, is just that everybody will evolve into our way of life with capitalism, democracy, and it's just not that simple. Like, with China, they've ended up doing very successful in their own way without following our sort of path. So, yeah. I actually got another quote that I think help, help explains that more as well. Within inevitability, no one is responsible because we all know that the details will sort themselves out for the better. With eternity, no one is responsible because we all know that the enemy is coming no matter what we do. So, I I mean, they're very similar, but just yielding two different results. Like, my impression is that Inevitability means that, like, what is it? Uh, like, things will ultimately end up working out. Things will be okay in mm-hmm. the end. Eternity is, why bother? An individual can't do anything against the eternity politics of history that just means in, in, that the person doesn't matter, that things are always going to be... Um, the enemy is coming no matter what we do. That's a good way to put it. I think it's sort of like the sense of complacency in both areas. So either things are going to end up how we expect or there's nothing we can do. Right. So So it's rather bleak, I think, both of them. I feel like, I feel like, I don't know, I didn't, that didn't resonate with me. The inevitability, eternity, whole bit, 
didn't resonate with me. And I feel like he had to keep explaining what he meant mm -hmm. over and over. Like, oh, here's an example of the eternity politics that Putin does. And, and, I, and that's, I get it. That's the whole, kind of the whole point of the book. But I feel like if someone, if someone, if he was more imaginative with coming up with a better way to describe the difference between the West and Russia, mm -hmm. and maybe... Like I said before, maybe it could just be condensed to like a New Yorker article and not, you know, have to be a whole book. I feel like that's what dragged Boggs down the book at times is him just going over and over again this difference between eternity and inevitability. It felt like there was a tension between whether he wanted this to be a historical book or a philosophical book or a political like mm. theory book. Right. Um, so it's like he couldn't really decide which genre, you know, he was going for. And I, and I guess you could almost make the argument that say that we're still, this is like a living history book almost, because it is a lot of stuff that's so recent. Like even Ukraine, Russia invading Ukraine was just four years ago. Presidential election is two years ago. So like we're still uh, living in the aftermath of those very current events still. So we don't know how things are going to shape out. So I guess he's, that's why he's kind of melding the history with the current political theory to kind of... I guess try to as almost as a warning to mm -hmm. say like, hey, these are two paths. But like that's just it. I don't feel like these are the only two paths. It, it, it just like you said, it, it just it's kind of complacent. Like either way, inevitability or eternity, it both options make me as an individual feel like there's nothing I can do. And I feel like he should have maybe offered a third route. I agree. I think his thesis, though, is that we need to take on responsibility and try to see past these two um, oh, sure. mindsets. But he doesn't really offer what that looks no. like. No, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, which... Yeah, which is too bad. So a little oversimplified, maybe, but let's talk about, you know, some of the, the details in the book and what interested you. Okay. Um, I, I don't want to skip over Ukraine because I know a lot of that is important, but just, <laughs> well, that, I mean, yeah, I mean like that did really pique my interest at the same time I was reading about the Ukraine stuff and being interested. I was still like glossing over the Russian names. Like, okay, it's this one guy. Oh, oh he's talking about this other guy now <laughs> who said these things. It just seemed like, it seemed like he went into detail about the different Russians because he's an expert and he knows all the different Russians. But to me... I, I I keep in touch with current events, but I don't know all the, these Russian guys in the Russian government or on Russian TV, mm -hmm. and so I just you know it, you get the gist of it that yeah in Russia they were having a spin campaign to spin it like oh the Russian speaking people in Ukraine are being persecuted so we have to go into Ukraine and help them out, but like I didn't, I just got bogged down a little bit in the weeds sometimes. Yeah, the names and everything, just yeah. hard to keep us engaged. But what I did take away from that chapter that I thought was interesting was um, just Russia's tactics in general with Ukraine, how they would send people unmarked in uniform in uniforms, which is very unlike many other past wars, it seems. And, so, and then uh, Putin would just like deny that there's a war going on, which is just... It's really crazy that you could have this mass lie that everybody knows is not true and that's still denied in public. It's like there's these different realities and 
it's like they just flood the news with so much fiction and so many storylines of what's going on so that people get sort of bogged down and exhausted uh, about the day-to-day what's actually happening. Right. So, And he touched a little, just a little bit briefly because it wasn't the point of this book, but when Putin became, rose to power after Boris Yeltsin, like the whole Chechen, Chechen war was kind of fabricated. When Putin, Putin got... Uh, appointed to prime minister, and most of the Russians were like, who's Putin? Who's this prime minister under Yeltsin? And then they had the Chechen war, and there's a whole good frontline documentary about this, Putin's rise to power or something like that, I think is what it's called, um, that this Chechen war was pretty much fabricated by the Russian government so that Putin could become a, str- a strong figure to the Russian people, and that he would then succeed Yeltsin as president and he was also at the same time a friend of Yeltsin so he would be okay letting Yeltsin off the hook with some of his more like I, I, Yeltsin did some like embezzlement or something like that I'm not sure that I forget the details but like they needed somebody who was a friend of Yeltsin but needed somebody to promote in, in the eyes of the Russian people and he touched that only briefly but I found that fascinating because Putin has been uh, conniving <laughs> yeah. on many fronts for a long, long time. I think I saw that documentary a long time ago, and I remember it was very good. Um, something about, like, they claimed the Chechens were doing these terrorist attacks or things like that, and they, like, whether or not that was true, they used it as an opportunity to seize more power, and Putin specifically. Right. Well, I mean, it was, I mean, it was pretty much untrue, because, like, there was... Like witnesses that saw Russian officials leaving one of the buildings that that was supposed to be bombed, but the bomb didn't go off, and they found this bomb, and that then they apprehended somebody, and it was a Russian operative, and all. So like it, I mean, it was pretty much fabricated by the Russian government, which is despicable. And well, I guess should I watch my language on this podcast in case Putin is happened to? <laughs> I think we're not on his radar as yeah. far as. <laughs> right, they can't find us, right? right. We, didn't, we didn't give up any personal. If, if we were Russian citizens, we'd probably <laughs> be found. Yeah, and but um, but anyway, so that's just a little bit. But so yeah, so Putin's been doing this for years, and yeah, he can blatantly lie in public because they control the media and they can just, uh, you know, control what the Russian population see and hear. And yes, this and this book made me thankful that I live in America with the First Amendment um, and the freedom of the press and um, yeah. I think we do take for granted the freedom of speech mm-hmm. because you can't just speak out the same way in, right. in Russia or say certain things. Well I think one, one part of the book um, he mentions that the Russian Supreme Court has ruled that it that Russian citizens can go to jail for posting like Historical facts about World War II that Russia doesn't like, right? <laughs> which is crazy, but that's the way it is. Over yeah, there. it's unfortunate. Well, let's just think of uh, or list some of the things he's involved in. As far as um, it was like the early two uh, thousands to twenty ten era. Um, so he supported Brexit. I don't know without Moscow's help in the pro- propaganda campaign if that would have happened. Right. Um, he supported all of these separatist movements, like the Scottish movement, I think, was one. Uh, and I yeah. didn't really know much about that. But um, And then just these candidates like Le Pen in mm-hmm. France. And, um, and then in Germany, which I thought was just crazy, is that he's 
helping Assad in Syria, bombing whatever, um, supplying military things to help produce more refugees because he knows Merkel is going to take them in and that will destabilize things. And then regardless of how well they integrate, he's going to use propaganda to make it look like these are like very dangerous refugees and terrorists and things like that. Isn't that crazy? He is bombing... He's helping Assad bomb Syria to create more refugees to go to Germany where he'll put out more propaganda against refugees. But it's all a a zero-sum game, which is so crazy. It's like Russia can't be as strong as these other countries, so their whole strategy is weakening uh, these Western countries. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely right, and that is pathetic. Well, I mean, we have to give them credit that it's working. I'm not yes. admiring it. I'm right. just objectively like okay. he's got to look at what's happened with um, Brexit, with Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. they've done they've done well, I guess, yeah. from their side. Yeah, but yeah, so yeah, they they've been involved heavily in throughout Europe in trying to destabilize Western Europe, and then, like I said before, like Estonia, like other Eastern European countries are joining the EU: mm-hmm. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. Um, I think there are some other ones. And then in 2013, Ukraine was up to uh, trying to get their act together to join the EU. And that, I guess I did learn more about the EU because it's not... There's not... Like, there's nothing... The benefits of the EU, the countries get to join the EU to be trade partners with all these other countries, but they have to... I think I have it written down, so I'll find it here in a second. In order to join the European Union, these countries had to demonstrate their sovereignty in specific ways that Russia had not, by creating a market that could bear competition, an administration that could implement EU law, and a democracy that held free and fair elections. So, to get in to for the for the economic and security benefits of joining the EU, EU has these benchmarks that countries must meet in their own country um, to get to to be able to join the EU and I think that is a clever way of doing it I never really knew like exactly what determines a country getting in the EU and why some countries are and other countries are not did you know that Switzerland is not in the EU hmm. I didn't know that you would have thought Switzerland would be but I think it's because they're, they're purely neutral. neutral and everything that yeah. they don't even join any organization <laughs> But besides, that's a little side note. But but I I learned more about what the EU uses as a standard to let countries in and join their uh, organization. And so in 2013, Ukraine was getting their act together to try to join the EU, and Russia saw that as almost like the domino uh, theory U.S. had in Vietnam. Like if communism spread to Vietnam, then it would topple and go to all these other countries. Russia felt like, well, if Ukraine goes to the EU, then that's right on Russia's doorstep. The Russian citizens are going to want free and fair elections. They're going to want, you know, a, a more equal economy where the rich don't control. Like there, there was multiple times he said that Russia was the most unequal country in terms of wealth distribution, which, I mean, I believe it from what I other other sources I read and hear about it, the, all the oligarchs in Russia. So I found all that interesting as well. Yeah, they make a crazy amount of like oil money and stuff. Yeah. But something about uh, the inequality is 
So they like try to distract their population, I think, by just focusing on like the West and blaming mm-hmm. them for things. But in the U.S., like we have an inequality problem as well. But it's a little because it's such like an emphasis on a meritocracy and capitalism and things like that. It's hard to um, to wrap our heads around it, I think, and to find solutions. But you could argue that a lot of the economic issues are the reason that Trump get elected, like his performance in Midwestern states, especially, mm-hmm. sure. and um, how the local economies and people are kind of struggling. Right. So I think there's a pattern there. Right. Yeah. But yeah, but but it's interesting because like Russia does not target the U.S. on that grounds, right? Because they're so much worse. They target the West on uh, our more social liberal, socially liberal stances, particularly in uh, gay and gay rights. That that's kind of one thing that. that he said that they equate Russia was equating the West with, uh, you know, sodomy at one point, to uh, so that everything associated with the West, including democracy, got a smear campaign because the West is all about sodomy. It was crazy how much Putin like sexualized things mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. As he would just in natural or er, um, national dialogue uh, interviews, things like that, he would just have just a really homophobic perspective on a lot of things and um, use that as a way to filter into the propaganda associating, like you said, like West with this. Right. Right. And that's really sad because I think I'm sure it's not been good for the Russian people who are LGBTQ. But anyway, so, so yeah, so then Ukraine wanted to join the EU. So then that's kind of what motivated Russia to act and, and, invade Crimea mm-hmm. and use all these tactics in Ukraine that he, the author goes into detail about. And then is the very next step. I mean, he talks about Paul Manafort a little bit and Yanukovych, the president of Ukraine, who he said it, it's kind of ironic that the country invading Russia invaded Ukraine and the president of Ukraine flees to Russia, mm-hmm. the, the country invading the, Ukraine. Uh, but that's what happened. And then... then the Brexit vote happens, and then the 2016 uh, presidential election happens. So he talks about how Russia need to, needed to create this fiction of Trump, the successful businessman. Mm-hmm. And this has been going back for years before the 2016 presidential election, that Russian banks and Russian business people were laundering money through Trump Tower condos and things like that and helping build the Trump Tower in Soho when and giving Trump a pro- proceeds of like the profits when he didn't really do anything other than just let his name be on the building. So he talks about all that background to Russians supporting Trump, kind of propping him up. And then he goes on to be the apprentice, has the apprentice TV show, is successful that way, and then eventually becomes a presidential candidate. And I think, I don't know, I don't know if it is, it can be known, but my question is, did Russia, did Russia support Trump, give him all this money, and everything in the anticipation that he could become president? I don't think that's very likely. I just think they gave him money and helped support him. Because he was such a predominant American figure 
that they felt like if they keep giving him money and feeding him money, then he's going to owe him. Like, they're, he's going to be in their pocket for someday, like the Godfather. Someday and that day may never come, I will call upon you to do a service for me. You know, they'll own him. So, do you think that Russians really thought that Trump could one day be president? Or that they were just feeding him money just to have... I think they underestimated how well he ended up doing in the elections. Okay. And I think, like, we underestimated yes. the people who would vote for him. Right. Um, so there are just so many factors here, I think, that led to his election, and we can go into those. But as you were saying, I think it's more that they were just getting him in their pocket and to pay, like... Um, have something on him for later on. But his whole campaign was about sort of this polarization, mm -hmm. um, sort of violating these norms we usually go by. I mean, there are times, a couple of times, he, like, suggested, not that discreetly, that someone should, like, murder Hillary Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> just like, I hope the Second Amendment people, just, like, crazy right. stuff. Yeah. And uh, that's, like, you know, third world, like, dictatorship mm -hmm. type tactics. Mm -hmm. And, um it's pretty scary, and I didn't. I don't think they thought he would actually win. And if he didn't win, he said he might not take the election results seriously, which is a yeah. huge norm to violate. Exactly. I mean, that's just it. They, the Russians, were just wanting to upset the apple cart in American politics, and boy, did they! I mean, and and, and Trump would have done that even if he would have lost. Mm -hmm. I agree. But the funny thing is, it might have backfired in the long run. Really? In so here, my perspective. Okay. So. Um, and I've heard other people talk about this sort of as well. Oh, so it's not your original. It's, it's something I, I've heard and I relate to, and I'll expand oh, on it. Sure. But uh, basically, like, they didn't think he would win. So if he didn't win, then there would still be all this tension from that um, base of supporters that, that voted for him. So it's almost like this cathartic thing that they let these people who felt underrepresented and underempowered uh, got someone elected... And so their voice is heard in the mainstream now. Um, and, like, they show the elite, globalist, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then really what's happening, though, is, like, Trump's popularity ratings and the Republican Party and all of that stuff has really damaged them in the long run. So even though he's got, he got elected and he's had these few years, one might argue that in the long run, maybe it's uh, helped our country sort of it's like a virus that you get stronger by right. dealing with it, you know, like a vaccine, like or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got you. Same, same potato, potato. But yeah, I, I, kind of agree with that because, like, if Trump did lose the presidential election, would we have learned all about the nefarious doings of the Russian um, trolls and online and all that stuff? I think we are much more aware now of what information across the internet can do. And the fact that Russia was a big player in our, in our 2016 presidential election. And if he would have lost, maybe we don't know all those specifics. So we're not as aware. So they can do it again in the future. Um, I think I did see a report that like 2018, the midterms was pretty, uh, pretty secure. So like I have, I have confidence going forward that we, you know, we'll be better prepared in the future to handle what may come. Whereas if Trump would have lost, maybe it would have, it would have been still lackadaisical and Russia would have been able to influence our our populace that still. Yeah, like with Facebook, like would they have been held as accountable as they have been without him actually getting elected? Mm -hmm. And yeah, they some things he mentions in the book, it's like it's crazy that they didn't catch some of this stuff or act oh. upon it. Oh, yeah. yeah. There, there are 
there are several times when he talks about Putin and the Russian media and stuff, the, the practices that they go, they have there, and I'm like, same thing could be said for Trump. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sad. Well, part of the flaw in our system is that with the internet, it's all about like an attention economy, he mentioned, so it sort of thrives on these emotion um, appeals to our emotion to make us angry or whatever. We're more likely to share something or clickbait type mm-hmm. thing. And Facebook didn't do a good job of regulating that. And Because um, they're not editors, Tim. Yeah. They're purely a tech company. They provide a platform. Yeah. I'm, I am being very I, facetious I in my sarcasm. tone. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, it's like, it's kind of we're all part of the problem, though, is because yeah. we let all of all of our local newspapers sort of die off is yep. what he mentioned, which yep. I sort of underestimated that as a factor, mm-hmm. but you, you don't want me to read that quote about the that's local a good quote. Yeah. Go ahead. Reporters. Sure. Let me find it here. It was a good one. Yeah. Where there are local reporters, journalism concerns events that people see and care about. When local reporters disappear, the news becomes abstract. It becomes a kind of entertainment rather than a report about the familiar. That's a great quote. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he has several nuggets like that in this book that don't even really pertain to Russia per se, but are very, um, very powerful. Because that is that is so true and so unfortunate. Well, it's a shame that people and us included, don't really want to pay for news. It's like, if things are out there, we'll just get them on the internet. Yeah, that's but, just it. We don't yeah. have to pay for news. Why would we, Tim? That's capitalism 101, right? Like, if you can get something for free, mm-hmm. why pay for it? But is Facebook news or is it propaganda? That's just it. You have, to, you have to be a, a, an aware consumer of news online. And some places charge you a monthly subscription to view their website now. And I feel like that's totally fair. Um, does that automatically validate their news? You could say no, because anybody can charge a subscription for a website. But I feel like if that is a source you trust, which I think is val- most of them are valid, so go ahead and do it. I think they just need to evolve and find a better business model. I know that's an oversimplified approach, Gosh, but think yeah, about it. Is. Think about like um, music streaming, right? Like yeah. with music streaming, um, you know, everybody wanted everything for free just because it was the easiest way to get music. But then you get like Spotify, you pay a subscription. Mm-hmm. But with the news, like I, I can't subscribe, pay for the Economist, New York Times, um, Wall Street Journal, local news here, this edit, you know, like how many subscriptions are there going to be? It's just a little hard. Like it's one thing to have one subscription for one music source with Spotify or Netflix and movies, but like how many new subscriptions are you going to get? Well, you can make the argument maybe that you don't only need one if you read it thoroughly and it, it like, you know, the Cincinnati Inquirer. I mean, you know, you could have an online subscription there. It'll give you the local news. And it would probably have AP articles about world stuff. Would it be the most in-depth? Maybe not. But do you need all that? I, I would I would argue that and say that you could get by with one news subscription. Are you paying for any news right now? I actually am. What news? Well, <laughs> I mean, I do get a magazine too. Foreign Policy, FP. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're more informed than the average citizen, I think. <laughs> well... 
Thank you. If I you read the magazine. I, I do. <laughs> I, and I read the website, too. They're actually going to feature me in a little blurb on their website because I filled really? a survey. Oh, and, and, and first person them. to fill out survey <laughs> is the blurb. That might be true. <laughs> That's cool. What is the survey about? It was just like a customer survey. Like, are you are you pleased with FP and the website, the the magazine? What do you what do you like? What do you don't like? And that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I, I sent in a little blurb. I just, I just filled out the survey to do them a favor, and then they emailed me back like a month later saying, "Hey, we're going to feature your." Is it okay if we feature your responses on some of our publications? I'm not sure. That's cool. Yeah. They're going to so, use you as advertising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I subscribe to Fortune Magazine, too. Like, I feel like, so you're saying uh, online subscriptions for news is still a work in progress. It could be better for the consumer. Like, And I noticed this with video streaming, too, is it's starting to get a little bloated where you have you have to pay for um, Prime and um, it's gonna keep getting Netflix, Sling, whatever. But people don't want to have 10 subscriptions going. But, like, Prime, they make it part of your shipping package. So that's, like, a creative way where it's Yeah, but I feel like that's bundled. the way it's going. I feel, I feel like it's only going to get more. You're going to have Disney. You already have ESPN+, Plus, mm-hmm. but Disney's going to have one. You know, Apple might come out with their streaming, ser- a streaming service. So, like, it's, I mean, and, and HBO has one. So, like, you, I mean, what do you do? You, you sign up your credit card to get it charged once a month, mm-hmm. and you forget about it. And you can go on there and watch as much as you want. Well, options are great, but also consumers want simplicity and not to be charged bang, 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 like a million times for different things. I mean, they'll find a balance, I think, eventually, but it's not sustainable to have infinite subscriber uh, platforms, I think. But you're reaching the long niche of the market, the long tail, mm-hmm. where niche markets, like, there's, like, a $5 a month horror movie stream Netflix, <laughs> you know? Like, there's, like, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, but, I mean, yeah, I, I agree that I feel like there is... I, my argument is that it's only going to get worse before it gets better, Tim. Yeah. And I, I, but I agree that I feel like there will be something after all this subscription. It uh, takes time. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. To see who's going to stick around. One last thing I'll say about the news, though, mm-hmm. is that um, I think it's good to have a variety of sources because each one sort of inherently like leans left or leans right a little yeah. bit for the most part. And yeah. and so if you have a balance, then you can kind of weigh those biases. And so I think instead of subscribing to there, there should be an option like a bundle, you know, like you bundle cable. Why don't you bundle newspapers and you pay X a month for that? That would be the mm. best consumer option. I don't know. Maybe that is a thing. I just haven't heard of it, but right. maybe that would be cool. That's a good question. I just came up with a new business yeah. for all five of our listeners. Yeah. This is <laughs> startup gold. Yeah. <laughs> Bundling news sources. One subscription. You get your top articles. Yeah. I think I'm onto something. I think you're onto something, but it'll be, I think it'll be tough because... I think you got decades of culture between newspapers of comp- competition, and I think that would be tough to find them ones that would be willing to bundle together. I agree. That makes sense. But they need to evolve and yeah, no, no, no. I agree. With that. I agree. I agree. Okay, yeah. we can move on. Anyway, so yeah, so then eventually, where were we? Like, yeah, so Putin invades Ukraine. We don't really give a shit, and so. We're not ready in 2016 when Russia attacks our presidential election. So End of story. <laughs> that's a good summary, yes. What I will say that uh, mentioning Paul Manafort at the end of that chapter is a uh-huh. good transition to the chapter yes, about yes, Trump. Because yeah. it's just insane that this guy 
becomes Trump's campaign manager. It's like how blatant can you get with this Russian ties? I know. Oh, but he wasn't. He wasn't with. He wasn't with Trump for very long. Yeah. Tim. So you know nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing. You know, there's no connection. He just there's no there his campaign. There. <laughs> yeah. He just bought a lot of fancy rugs. There's so much like Orwellian doublespeak and stuff. Oh, it's crazy. Oh my god, is there ever? But the ties to the Trump family are crazy. Like I didn't realize. Um, mm-hmm. So like selling Trump property, like you said, in the tower for years mm-hmm. to like mobs, so they're laundering money that way. And then like uh, Deutsche Bank or whatever mm-hmm. is that how you pronounce it? Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank. Um, they. Uh, so they're the only bank that would lend him money because he was so in debt. I know. And then uh, they also lent money to like um, Kushner, Jared Kushner, mm-hmm. and then right, like right before the presidential election. Right. And then they uh, he he had a firm that donated a bunch of money to like Facebook and Twitter and stuff. So it's like they're sort of got a got a hand in that area. Right. So and, um, then, yeah. and then here's something in the year in the half year between his nomination as the Republican candidate and his victory in the general election, some seventy percent of the units sold in Trump's buildings were purchased not by human beings, but by limited liability companies. That's insane. 70% of the units sold in his buildings were purchased by LLCs, which he's not like, these are like condos. And, uh, yeah. How is that possible, like, legally? <laughs> or like the Russian oligarch buying a property for like $30 million more million than it's worth? Mm-hmm. It's like, how yeah. obvious do you have to get? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, just to mention again on the ties to Russia. So if you think about like, uh, who's the guy? Jeff Sessions met with mm. Russians. Mm-hmm. Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, was appointed like uh, fr- best friend of Russia. Yeah. Like, that was <laughs> I seriously. Know. That, yeah, I know that was seriously the title, yeah. wasn't it? When he was when he was Exxon CEO, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he became Secretary mm-hmm. of State. Mm-hmm. And our secretary, uh, like that's a period where so many diplomats like um, positions weren't being filled. So mm-hmm. he just did a terrible job, yeah. it seems. And um, just uh, all of these different appointments, like Michael Flynn, mm-hmm. people are just having these really strong connections to Russia. It's very concerning. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think the Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. 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 Mueller investigation is uh, wrapping up, so it'll be interesting. I <laughs> see where it goes. Everyone thinks they're wrapping up. You think they're still going on for a while? I mean... Yes, I do. I think it will still be six months at least. And, and my concern is that one of my coworkers asked, like, well, by the time this thing gets done, is people, are people going to care? And I think there will be a lot of people that say, hell yes. Mm-hmm. But then there will be the middle of the road people that are like, yeah, what is taking so long? You know, why can't they wrap this thing up? And, I, and to me, that does, I'm not one of those people, but I feel like there is some sentiment like that. So... My, I am, I am pessimistic that the Mueller investigation, whatever it turns out, is going to be taken with, with the gravitas that it needs to be taken with. Because I feel like people are just going to shrug it off like they shrug off everything else Trump says and does. Well, that's a very cynical yes perspective. But let me just offer my thoughts here. Sure. Uh, I think he waited until after the midterm so it wouldn't be politicized Correct. as much that being said i wish there were still a timeline where it, it's like the end is in sight he's going to come out with information now it seems like it's getting to a point in time where it, 
impeaching almost doesn't make sense because you can just wait for the next election. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm hoping there will be enough bombs dropped that I know it seems like people are apathetic to a certain degree, but from what it sounds like with Cohen and how much he's been talking, it seems like there could be some pretty heavy stuff that'd be hard to ignore. And Manafort was playing this game of like, maybe I'll get a pardon (laughs) or maybe I talk. I know. And I think he's betting on pardon, but probably going to be out of luck. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the final thing I'll say, I think is that uh, someone put this well, that they said Trump is like, a spectacle like an entertainer and like the apprentice the show is really popular but eventually people got tired of it and it seems like people are getting tired of trump the spectacle at a certain point it's like you know you get sick of the seeing the same thing over and over again on the news even his fan base even though they might might or might not agree that he's full of crap uh just seeing him day in day out trying to stir up drama and polarization i think will grow old so that's my hope i hope so i hope you're right tom or tim (laughs) (laughs) unfreedom untruth different names okay i hope you're right tim but i'll still be cynical i'll be the optimist here yeah okay we can do quotes we can do quotes now yeah i just i just there were some other good ones like the local reporters one was good Mm mm-hmm um, well, these were all from the end, so I'll start back at the beginning. But yeah. Sure. Um, oh, this is a good one. All right. Like all immorality, eternity politics begins by making an exception for itself. All else in creation might be evil, but I and my group are good, because I am myself and my group is mine. Others might be confused and bewitched by the facts and passions of history, but my nation and myself have maintained a prehistorical innocence. Since the only good is this invisible quality that resides in us, the only policy is one that safeguards our innocence, regardless of the cost. Those who accept eternity politics do not expect to live longer, happier, and more fruitful lives. They accept suffering as a mark of righteousness if they think that guilty others are suffering more. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. The pleasure of life is that it can be made nastier, more brutish, and shorter for others. Mm. This, uh, go, you go. Oh, I mean, this talks exactly what you said earlier. That it's that Putin, Russia, Putin and Russia can't be like the West and, and America. So they want to bring everybody down to their level. That at one point, I think he says that um, Russia is playing a negative sum game, whereas I may be losing, but you're losing more. And that's all that matters. And that's this is why I'm cynical, Tim. <laughs> okay, okay. Fair enough. That's okay, that's a good quote. Yeah. I like it because like you said, it's the negative sum. It's not even zero sum. No, it's yeah. negative sum yeah. because they're actively harming these right. countries, um, getting in their way of policies right. and things. Why not improving life's life in Russia? They're just what's the opposite of improving? They're they're Dragging other countries down without lifting Russia up at all. So, like, as a Russian <clears throat> citizen, you wonder how their perspective, what it's like, and how they can support the government, or to what extent they weigh the benefit of opposing the government versus just going on with their lives. Right. But the propaganda arm of Russia is just so powerful that 
let's not focus on how unequal the wealth is here. Let's just focus on all these other countries mm -hmm. and blame them for things. But one interesting tangent I thought is worth going on. Um, sure. I heard <laughs> the, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? The show. Yeah. The Russian version. They had to take out the ask an audience question uh, or option because people were actively giving the wrong answer <laughs> to sabotage the person because they didn't want them to win the money. Oh my goodness, yeah. no way. It's super interesting. That yeah. is fascinating. It was like the a Russian sociological thing? experiment. Oh my God. That is messed up. Yeah. But it's just, if you think about it, like culturally, it's just mm -hmm. compared, comparing Russians with the United States or something, that's just how they see other people. They don't want this millionaire to have a bunch of luck. They want... <laughs> I mean that's a simplification, but yeah. no. I mean I think it, it it does. It is a window into the psyche of the average Russian. Sure, Tim. <laughs> so speaking about eternity, I have one quote. Sure, That'd be good. Uh, um, if Russia could not become the West, let the West become Russia. If the flaws of American democracy could be exploited to elect a Russian client then Putin could prove that the world outside is no better than Russia. Were the European Union or the United States to disintegrate during Putin's lifetime, he could cultivate an illusion of eternity. Yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were glimpses when I kind of understood why he called it eternity politics, but still I feel like he could have come up with a more imaginative... He needs like a branding expert yeah, to help him out here. Something. I don't know what... <laughs> This is a little tidbit I found interesting. For, this is about Brexit. Okay. All, right. All right. 419 Twitter accounts that posted on Brexit were localized to Russia's Internet Research Agency. Later, every single one of them would also post on behalf of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. About a third of the, of the discussion of Brexit on Twitter was generated by bots, and more than 90% of the bots tweeting political material were not located in the United Kingdom. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? It's the same accounts that were helping Brexit were helping the campaign. Yeah. It's like they weren't even trying to like create new ones or like hide because, their stuff. Because no one was watching. Yeah. This is all because because this is all, you know, written out in, on the internet that we could go back and view it. But at the time we had no idea. That's just it. No one was watching. From their perspective, is it that they didn't create separate accounts because they didn't think they'd be found out, or mm -hmm. just like they're so brash that we don't care. We're doing this anyway. Could be a bit of both, I would think. Do you know that like, Twitter account Tennessee GOP or something? Yeah, that's I was insane. Get to that too, okay, later. you want me to read it off? Yeah, sure. Um, I got it here somewhere. I got a couple of things. More about social media. All right. So the first one you said, the Russian version of the Tennessee Republican Party had 10 times more Twitter followers than the actual Tennessee Republican Party. 10 times. Yeah. That's crazy. And here's another one. Despite all this, the Heart of Texas Facebook page had more followers in 2016 than those of the Texas Republican Party or the Texas Democratic Party, or indeed both of them combined. Everyone who liked, followed, and supported Heart of Texas was taking part in a Russia, Russian intervention in American politics designed to destroy the United States of America. Ooh. Yeah, crazy, Brian's man. getting fired up. Oh, man. I... So let's, let's talk about it for a second. All right. So Talk about what? Those, <laughs> <laughs> those accounts. 
That's what I'm saying. You have to hand it to Russian propaganda for oh, absolutely. their success. Absolutely. <laughs> like, I completely agree. Like, they got us. They, got, they put us in check. Mm-hmm. They didn't put us in checkmate. So we were able to get out of it. But now we're, now we're playing behind. And we got we got to we got to catch up, and we got to be aware. And in, and what you said before is absolutely right. It is on each individual. The I, it is, it's a it's a it's a conundrum. It's a it's a definitely. Um, how do you? Does there need to be an education campaign? How do you get the individual to do the work? Because there's so much misinformation out there. Yeah, if you were one of these users who fell for this propaganda, I think many of them won't even admit it. Would they even know, Tim? Would they even know? Well, if you told them this is a fake account, you spread or liked fake information, would they even admit it or agree to it? Well, you you would have to literally hand people a screenshot of their account with a like or share with a with the Heart of Texas account. Yeah, but people 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 don't remember that. They won't remember that. But it, but you would have to confront them and say, "Look at this. You shared this account." And and would they, so you're saying is would they even admit it? I would yeah. say that they wouldn't even know that they did it. I'm not yeah, I'm not saying the memory is the issue. I'm just saying like the campaign and everything um, politics these days is so like polarized mm-hmm. and people are so stuck in their biases that psychologically I don't know if many of them could bring themselves to say they might just say like oh that was fake or that's fake news that's doctored up something mm-hmm. because they can't see that possibility or if they can't if one more thing if they can't do that then what they do is they uh, it's like what aboutism where mm-hmm. they just deflect right. and focus because I'll say this to like people in Ohio mm-hmm. possibly not too far from me be like oh well, this is crazy have you thought about this maybe not in that calm tone but then uh they'll be like well what about hillary's emails or yeah, something just yeah. like we weren't, we're not talking about that right, right. <laughs> what about <laughs> is a disease in our society yeah because it, it is saying that two completely different things are equal when they have no real connection whatsoever and sometimes it might be legitimate where you bring up one thing and they're like, well, what about this? And so there are times when there are dominoes that fall that one thing leads to another and can create a quagmire or something. Whatever. But you're absolutely right is that people always deflect and talk about something else that is wrong when two wrongs don't make a right. Well, no one wants to admit they were wrong Correct. or that they liked a fake account. Correct. Propaganda. <laughs> so are you saying that these people would do it willingly or almost like reflexively? Mm, it's an emotional response, <laughs> I think. So reflexively almost is what you're saying. Like, yeah. they, like they would be almost so caught up in their um, emotional connection that they have to their beliefs and politics that they wouldn't even be able to recognize that they had uh, contributed to the the spread of this Russia propaganda. Their ego and psyche, I don't mm. think, could bring themselves to admit it, even if the facts are there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I agree with you there. I I 
thought at first you were saying like people will be would be aware that something is going on and still cling still refuse to say that they contributed in it because they were embarrassed or something like yeah. that well that too you know yeah but i feel like if if people truly get a, their eyes open mm-hmm. to this kind of stuff i feel like they would want to just they, I mean, that's they wouldn't even have to make amends or anything. Just going forward from this point on, have your have your eyes open, your ears open, and, and be and be on the lookout for fake stuff and mm-hmm. stuff that if it if it doesn't smell right, you know, it's probably BS. My sense is that people are starting to realize how toxic these conversations are. Mm-hmm. Like, it's good to like have political discussions if they're calm but if we're just like spewing our hatred and just hate both sides that's we're not going to heal or evolve oh no not at all i completely agree but the thing is that that politics has taken root in almost like the emotional centers of our brain to the point where we identify ourselves in this society with our beliefs about political issues and we will let those political issues determine how we vote and determine what we choose to believe and what we choose not to believe. And I think that's dangerous. Um, And I, I do agree there needs to be more willingness to view the other side's perspective to, to work together, especially. And and not be so... Your identity is not who you vote for. Your identity is not your political party. Your identity is so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people need to recognize that and be accepting of everybody. And just take a break from the news for yeah, a while. Right? <laughs> yeah. The 24 news cycle is not... Not healthy. healthy. Not yeah. at all. Okay, you got some more quotes? Yeah, man. Here's something. Um, and, and this was uh, the author writing about this Russian guy named Dugin. D-U-G-I-N. I kind of forget who he was, but... Dugin stole the show with his passionate case that only a united far right could save Europe from gay Satan. <laughs> and that's the kind of rhetoric... That that fuels what we just talked about this this division in humanity between us and them versus right and left, and it's just completely sad. And 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 I I even made a little note about that that fear is very very powerful, and I do not mean to make political general generalizations. But it seems to be that, like, <sighs> racism, xenophobia, people that get so afraid of people that are different from them, um, that they, peop- that politicians and media have used that fear to motivate people, and fear is one of the most powerful emotions we have. So there is nothing really as powerful to counterbalance that. 
was my um, and so thus you know all these politicians and media people that that fuel fan the flames of that fear it's gaining steam and the rest of us are like oh we need to do something to stop that mm-hmm. and and like I could be really hokey here and say that love is the only other thing that can counterbalance that but like it just seems like there's no again then my cynical side comes out and be like well there is no love anymore in the world <laughs> so just so everyone knows Brian has had one beer and he's <laughs> He's talking like he's had ten. I know. I, I for some reason this got me going tonight. I don't know. What I just think we should all love each other. Yeah, I mean, it just. I. I agree with you. Rhetoric matters. Yeah. I know people say, "Oh, he just he didn't mean what he said," mm-hmm. you know. But at the end of the day, you rhetoric does matter because it just sets the tone of what is acceptable in society and what is not. And we just got have to take a stand, put our foot down, and say that you can't say certain things. We have the freedom of speech, yes, but you can't say that you can shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not lose a single vote. You can't say that Mexicans are rapists. And I'm and I, and I don't, you know. Anyway, I agree with you. Yeah, I think this is a very important topic. But um, I know we are very much digressing. No, from no, the no. Book. I, I want so. to talk a little more about this. Okay. I think, uh, yeah, like you're saying, the fact that he could get away with racist comments, mm-hmm. with um, these comments about like or just mocking like a disabled person, yeah. just crazy basic human mm-hmm. things that you think are out of how could anybody's campaign survive? Because he never apologizes. Mm-hmm. He just courts attention at all costs. Mm-hmm. But so on some level, we're all to blame because we take in. Um, this media news cycle, whatever gets the most attention, whatever gets the most hits, right. is whatever causes the most outrage. So right. he's just playing the system. Right. Um, but one more thing I would say is that it goes on both sides: the the name calling and the the terms and things like that. There are these like um, pretty high level liberals who will call people in the Midwest and South rednecks yeah. and white trash and things like that. And so I agree with you that all those like racist remarks are terrible but at the same time you have to understand the perspective of a trump voter is that people in this area in the part of the country they think oh it's the coastal elites elites calling us flyover country like that our lives don't really matter that sort of thing so it's like oh we'll show you we'll right. elect this person right all right a couple things about that i completely agree yeah. that liberals can be just as bad as the far right and i mean just as bad and but I would also have to say that no president has ever said, has ha, no president has had the rhetoric that Trump has had, and I think that is very very dangerous. In public, <laughs> in, in public, yes, in, well, in public, you're right. The Nixon tapes were pretty bad, I guess. But and I and I would also say that the Midwesterners' feeling feelings about the coastal elites. How much of that is anchored in uh, legitimate comments, and how much is fabri- fanned by the uh, the media? And I'm not going to say that the the media is solely responsible for that. The Midwesterners thinking that the coastal elites don't think anything of them, because it's true. Because there there is some 
resentment that liberals think that people from Nebraska and Iowa and, and all the other Midwest states are just like, yeah, yeah, rednecks or whatever, like you said. But 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 my other po- my greater point is the one that we never had leaders of our country be saying these things, and that is where we have to draw the line. Right. As a leader, his character leaves so much to be desired. Yes. He just someone made a meme the other day of like the seven <laughs> deadly sins, and he just like had a picture of him embodying each one, <laughs> just like lust, yeah. uh, sloth, greed, yeah. envy. Yeah. Um, but one, okay, I'll transition out of this topic sure. by saying uh, there was this correlation between Midwestern states and the opioid crisis and mm. uh, states that voted for Trump. And mm. I don't think that's a coincidence. No. Um, so I'll just mention this quote. He says, the association between declining health and Trump voting was strong in important states that Obama had won in 2012, but which Trump took in 2016, such as Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. When life is short and the future is troubled, the politics of eternity beckons. Mm-hmm. So it's like these people, I, I just think they feel at a loss. Like right. both parties are kind of ignoring them. So they right. just say, why not go for this outsider mm-hmm. who's at least acknowledging us and our suffering? Right. And of the two politics that he talks about in the book of inevitability and eternity, when you're faced with despair, you're going to go towards eternity. You're just going to bend that direction. Because despair, you have no hope, and you're like, well, let's just go with Trump. Let's just do it. Let's get an outsider in there and shake things up in Washington. But I just think, I don't know if we want to go down this road, but Bernie Sanders as a populist was appealing to a lot of people, even if you think his policies were unrealistic, even Mm -hmm. if you could argue he damaged the Democratic Party's chances in the real election. If it were Sanders versus Trump... I want to think more people would have gotten behind Sanders than Clinton. Because to me, what she represented was not, um, it wasn't getting a lot of people excited. It was just like, here's another Clinton. Here's someone who doesn't really care about me. It's mm-hmm. just, she, she comes off kind of fake. and it, That's unfortunate. Yes, I agree. Because I feel like she is actually a good governor of, you know, a good person to have in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right, she comes off as insincere, um, and that's unfortunate. She had the experience, and yes. she had, uh, I think she would have been a good leader, right? especially relative to Trump. It's just, yeah, about rallying people and mm-hmm. being someone they can Do look you think up to. Part of me also thinks that the 2016 presidential election was uh, a pendulum swing due to having our first African-American president. I think that's a factor. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy, like the Russian propaganda, how much they played up the birth certificate yes. thing. It's like they're just trying to, for years and years, just stewing resentment. Mm-hmm. So they're feeding into that whole yep. mindset. And then with um, like Sanders and Clinton at the convention, it's like they released these hacked emails and things like that. Mm-hmm. So with Donald Trump Jr. meeting with WikiLeaks and all of these actors are kind of conspiring together here. Mm-hmm. Or uh, this is one of the last quotes I have. But So on October 7th, Trump seemed to be in trouble when a tape revealed his view that powerful men should sexually assault women. 30 minutes after that tape was published, Russia released the emails of the chairman of Clinton's campaign, John Podesta, thereby hindering a serious discussion of Trump's history of sexual predation. So that's a good example, I think, of how we couldn't focus on this huge glaring flaw of his or uh, controversial incident because 
they're keeping the news cycle going by saying, hey, look at this other thing. Well, it's whataboutism. It's right? a I spectacle. Mean, yeah. It's the, oh, it's a circus. Yeah, absolutely. Distraction. Yeah. Right. There were some other good ones. Um, here is an interesting quote. Puerto Rico has more inhabitants than 21 of the 50 American states, but its American citizens have no influence on presidential elections. How crazy is that? That's messed up right there. They're, they're American citizens. What's their legal... The their territory. Okay. Yeah. They should have representation. Um, John Oliver, I think, had a good special on this yeah. or segment. I don't think I saw that one. On Puerto Rico statehood? Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure. And then when you talk about like the hurricane and things, mm-hmm. it's like yeah. we barely really helped yeah. out as a country. So Trump adopted the Russian double standard. He was permitted to lie all the time, but any minor error by a journalist discredited the entire profession of journalism. Isn't that sad? It, it should worry everybody how much yeah. he attacked journalists yeah. in general. And then, and then here's the laundry list of Trump's um, uh, stuff. Okay. An eternity politician defines foes rather than formulating policies. Trump did so by denying that the Holocaust concerned Jews, by using the expression son of a bitch in reference to black athletes, by calling a political opponent Pocahontas, by overseeing a denunciation program that targeted Mexicans, by publishing a list of crimes committed by immigrants, by transforming an office on terrorism into an office on Islamic terrorism, by helping hurricane victims in Texas and Florida, but not in Puerto Rico, by speaking of shithole countries, by referring to reporters as enemies of the American people, by claiming that protesters were paid, and so on. And so on. Like, that, it's just... There's always something new, like every week with Trump. So if you actually compile all the shit he's said and stuff, it's just pathetic. It's exhausting to it is. <laughs> to keep up with. So here, this will be my last quote. Okay. In the end, though, freedom depends on citizens who are able to make a distinction between what is true and what they want to hear. Authoritarianism arrives not because people say that they want it, but because they lose the ability to distinguish between facts and desires. There's your road to unfreedom, Tim. (laughs) That's good. That's good. People get complacent. They don't take responsibility. And we devolve into authoritarianism. Yeah. Uh, Can I say one more quote? Absolutely. Okay. This is my last one. So, okay. He says, in the Russian model, investigative reporting must be marginalized so that news can become a daily spectacle. The point of spectacle is to summon the emotions of both supporters and detractors and to confirm and strengthen polarization. Every news cycle creates euphoria or depression and reinforces a conviction that politics is about friends and enemies at home rather than about policy that might improve the lives of citizens. Trump governed just as he had run for office, as a producer of outrage rather than as a formulator of policy. Yeah. See, That's so true. That is so true. Was it a professor of outrage? Uh, producer. Or, producer, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Producer of outrage. Because it's then, like... Because how... what policy has he done? A tax I mean, bill? Tax that was cuts. mostly cre- credit. That was mostly Congress. Yeah. He just signed the damn thing. Yeah. It just... We all need to find a way to move past this outrage culture, spectacle yeah. culture. Um, 
I I am heartened by history mm-hmm. because the sixties and seventies were <laughs> were tumultuous as well. Nixon, we had a president resign because he was going to be impeached anyway. So, and then you know Vietnam War, civil rights movement, and everything. So. What the past two years have taught me is that history is cyclical, and we will get through this. But what this book taught me is not to be complacent and to be a knowledgeable consumer of news everywhere, social media included. Mm -hmm. That's a good takeaway. I think the main thing for me is just to have some empathy for both sides of the political spectrum recognize how yes. big of an influence the political propaganda machines were right. influencing us and try to just take a step back and not be so emotional and mm-hmm. try to move forward rather than stay stuck in this right. eternity yeah of unfreedom <laughs> of, <laughs> all right yeah. so tim yeah what would you rate this book are we doing half stars? I never. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> did we ever decide? No, I don't want to do half stars. You okay. did one half star already. Let me guess. Down. You're gonna say, why don't you, you go first? Well, I'm conflicted. Yeah. Because I found this topic, and this, um, I found the the subject matter interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and out of respect to the author, I'm going to give it higher than what I should. Okay. I'm going to give it a three. Uh, as a book, it's probably a one. Ooh. Yeah, really? I mean that. I mean, like, I, I, that, that is a little harsh. That's a little harsh. This is probably the longest this, discussion this, we've had. I know. This is the longest discussion we have because it's been, it has been a, a launching pad for, to discuss what's going on in the world because it is yeah. very relevant. Right. But I, I would not recommend this book to anybody unless they were really interested in Russia. Um, and like I said before, I think it should have just been a long article in New Yorker or something. I think books have more staying power though. Like not, I, I dis, I do, I disagree with this one. I do not think 10 years from now, this one will, I, I mean, cause this is such, this is about stuff that's just happened. Mm-hmm. So in 10, 20 years. I don't disagree with you that this could have been a news article. All I'm saying is that physically a book can be on the shelf in 10 years, whereas most articles seem to be pushed to the back burner. You don't ever think back on articles you read years ago, do you? Well, maybe. I'm a foreign policy subscriber. <laughs> I fill out surveys. Get out of here. <laughs> all right, all right. Whatever. What do you give it? What do you give it? I, I was stuck between three and four. Oh, okay. Uh, I think because of the topics, because of the time we're living in, these are important things to read. I wish he had made it more accessible to people to say, here's what you should really take away from it. Right. Instead of the, all of the Ukraine stuff. I know it's really important for context, but... It's yeah. it's more of just a, a, a warning. It's... What, what do they call that when a story... A, a cautionary tale. It is a cautionary tale with no solution or plan of action going forward. Mm-hmm. Other than just to be aware of this, Russia, yeah, <laughs> it's important though. It I, is. I, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying it could have been better. Yeah, I give it a three. Okay. Okay. Right. So next time, 
Next book will be Calypso by David Sedaris. It'll be my pick. A happy one, finally. Yes. Thank God. <laughs> but all right. So we're done? Yeah. I all think right. so. I think that was, that was a good talk. <laughs>